My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Every fifth episode of this podcast, we will go through the news of the past month and relate to our analysis uh, of our podcast recordings. If you, as our listeners, encounter any articles relevant to our content, we would be grateful for you to share them with us. This week's episode will specifically talk about the political situation in Ukraine and Zelensky's liberal credential, Biden's visit to the Middle East, and the parallels between the Tories and Donald Trump, as well as the use of the word terrorism with respect to the Russian state. I'm starting with uh, the first episode uh, we published, which was the episode on uh, Ukraine. Um, here we analyzed the West's attitudes and involvement regarding the war in Ukraine. And more in detail, we discussed the difference uh, in the Western perception of Putin versus Zelensky and the damage that embracing one and demonizing the other can cause. Uh, Boulder, what was something that sparked your interest or that um, relates, to our, uh, relates to our first episode that you, you saw in the news in the past, past month? Well, one of the things that we discussed and that is clear during any times of war in any state is that um, issues that are important during peace in terms of liberal democracy, uh, democratic processes, uh, legal processes, they come under fire during war. And this is something that has become increasingly visible in Ukraine. That is not something special in itself. That is something you always see during war times. But what you have to remember here is that Ukraine is still a very young democracy, is a, is a country that has only very recently adopted the Western liberal systems. And as we discussed previously, those systems typically take a very, very long time to mature and to develop. So in a country that has a very short tradition of democratic, liberal, Western, if you like, processes, uh, the dangers of war are much higher, the structural potential for uh, totalitarian tendencies, for authoritarianism, for dictatorship, becomes much, much more grave. And that is exactly what you're observing in Ukraine right now. And that is something that the West has to think about carefully, because if they have been embracing Zelensky like this savior, like this um, man bravely standing up against Putin's dark totalitarianism, uh, with Zelensky going into every Western parliament, speaking in an unprecedented way in front of um, a standing ovation of, of parliamentarians uh, in, in the UK, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in Israel, in the United States, everywhere, then now you have to sort of revise that and think, okay, hang on, are we actually backing the right person? Because Zelensky is showing some very concerning signs about his own position of power within Ukraine. And it's, it's not only that he's speaking in front of the parliaments, but so last month um, the European Union also uh, basically gave the starting sign for accession talks of Ukraine to the European Union. Um, and I mean, there was a lot of talk about fast tracking it, but uh, I mean, apart from the fact that there are no, well, that they're currently, the, the borders of Ukraine are currently contested, but there's also, uh, I mean, Ukraine is not very democratic at the moment, so I, don't, I, I would see very big problems in fast-tracking EU accession talks because very quickly, I think it was the first month of the war, um, it, uh, Zelensky forbade other political parties, especially the ones representing Russian minorities. Uh, he also unified um, all, all media channels into one, which that one I might, I might be willing to give to him just for, for clear communication, but the part about political parties is very difficult. 
And then what you see lately uh, with him, I mean, seeing more and more, well, I mean, or at least taking out, no, not taking out, but firing certain officers um, or certain representatives of his government, uh, seems like he is trying to to tighten his, his, well, his grip on power. Yeah, exactly. And that in itself is, is not something uncommon during times of war, but the way he does it and the knowing the background of this, knowing that he was already under fire from before the war started because of uh, corruption, because of clear problems in respecting the things that the West values so highly, at least on paper. Right. Um, we just have to ask ourselves, like, well, what what is going on here? And, and is there any chance ever that uh, this type of Ukraine could actually enter the European Union? The, the, the serious answer to that should, of course, be no. And it feels like a political game, like some kind of fake game to that that Europe is going to go through um, where they pretend that Ukraine is a serious candidate. But in reality, there is no way that this type of country um, could enter a organization of states that is so fundamentally based on liberal, democratic, uh, legal precedent. Hmm. And I'm, uh, I mean, that is, we already said that this podcast is, I mean, it's separate from Raya, but uh, here, um, author, an author of Raya, Michael Duffy. He recently wrote about Zelensky and the problems that he still faces with implementing uh, a lot of the reforms that he promised a few years ago, with especially with the oligarchs, his crackdown on that, and I mean, basically giving power back to the people. None of this has happened, and it's even gotten worse in the past few months. No, absolutely, and then that only comes to, goes to show that you have to be very careful on these kinds of things. So this is not about assessing the morality of the war but just like in many ways the vilification of putin got to absurd levels the heroic traits that are attributed to zelensky are also getting slightly insane um and and they're just not based on reality they're not what is happening on the ground now the, the problem there's a very practical problem here because what we are saying is not something that leaders uh, throughout Europe don't understand that, right? And so what's, what's going to happen is at some point the war will stabilize as long as there's a frozen conflict between Ukraine and Russia, accession to the European Union or NATO is impossible anyway. But let's say, which is a big if, but let's say that at some point um, a real peace gets negotiated between Russia and Ukraine, stability breaks out in Ukraine, European leaders know that at that moment they will change their tune on Ukraine joining the European Union. And at that moment, the Ukra Ukrainian population will feel betrayed because all these promises are being made and then will not be kept. But there's just no way that a country with this kind of leadership could actually join. And we've seen this before, right, with Turkey, with a lot of countries from the Balkans where EU accession was promised. Um, I mean, Erdogan, I think, is a great example of this, who for years tried to join the European Union. It took too long and then he took a different path, which was which he then deemed more more beneficial for his country. Um, that's, that's, sir, that, that is a, that's a great example, because look at the, the damage that that since then has done to the position of Western Europe. Right. So it, it was even before Erdogan that uh, that Turkey was actively pursuing 
joining the European Union, all kinds of vague promises were made, even though it was completely obvious. I can tell you I was there. I was a student of IR in those days uh, when, when it was a hot topic. It was completely obvious that it wasn't going to happen. 80 million people from a country that uh, historically has been seen as an enemy of Western Europe, the Ottoman Empire, uh, now turned into modern-day Turkey. For There was no way that they would ever join. Everyone knew it, but nobody really wanted to say it because it was kind of politically incorrect. It was going against the flow, the tides of history, if you like. Then it turns out that, yes, as we all knew, it is not going to happen. And all of a sudden, Turkey drifts away from the West and actually becomes a huge, huge problem for the West. And this is a typical, typical um, occurrence in Western foreign policy, where they are slightly blinded by their own rhetoric, by their own high ideals and principles. They, they get thrown out. As if they're nothing, in practice, uh, it never reaches into any real political outcomes. And then there is a backlash. And that backlash that Turkey has had against the West has been incredibly damaging for geopolitics in European and North American capitals. And the same could very likely happen with Ukraine. All right, and then so so let's move on from the from the first episode then to the second episode we recorded, and this one was on the Iran nuclear deal, and in this episode we discussed the Western bias towards Iran and how this has made progress much more difficult. Um, specifically, we mentioned the Western obsession with nuclear weapons in Iran, and here in particular, Iran being a country that embodies all the Western fears that they are. So you have an anti-Western, hardcore Islamic theocracy that even worse for the West is unresponsive to Western hegemony. And here um, I stumbled across an article in the Times of Israel uh, a week or a week and a half ago um, where, and I'm just going to quote this here, where Kamal Kairazzi, the head of Iran's Strategic Council on Foreign Relations, uh, he basically told that it is no secret that we, Iran, have the technical capabilities to manufacture a nuclear bomb but we have no decision to do so. And I think Paul just ties very well into, into what you said during the Iran episode, right? Yeah, so we for, for over 40 years, since the very beginning of the um, new Iranian uh, theocracy, since, since 1979, the West has been claiming that Iran has been close to developing nuclear weapons. There has been absolutely no evidence for that. Um, in, in any hard, there have been some suggestions, but there has not been hard evidence that Iran has been developing nuclear weapons. And um, if it was true that 40 years ago they were developing it, then by now they would have. So there is some clear evidence that at least 40 years ago, these claims from the West of Iran trying to develop nuclear weapons um, were untrue, were incorrect. Now, are they developing it now? Um, I have no idea. Um, they might, they might not. But history would tell us that they're not. That they're not. They haven't so far shown um, any hardcore evidence of of wanting to do so. So then the West claiming over and over again that um, that Iran is about to get the bomb is something that should be taken with a pinch of salt, especially because, as you just quoted, it's completely obvious that if Iran wanted to, they've got they've got the technical capabilities. Nobody does it. But then again, loads of countries in the world have technical capabilities of developing nuclear weapons. Um, most countries choose not to for a whole set of reasons. And I think because the, the central element here, and this was also, I think, two, three weeks ago uh, when the 
what International Energy Agency or International Atomic Energy Agency, um, when they published a report saying that, oh, Iran is no longer giving us access, but um, the, the last status was that uh, they have enriched uranium to about 60% and apparently 90% is needed uh, for a nuclear bomb. And the way I interpreted this is that this is more a tool for negotiation, is that Iran very much knows this of this Western fear of it becoming nuclear, so they are playing a little bit with this uh, with this uranium enrichment because again enriching uranium does not mean that you're going to build a bomb. Um, there are also civilian reasons to do so, but I think that this is I mean is it, I mean this is just a take, but that this is more a negotiation tactic than maybe an actual striving for a nuclear bomb. Exactly, I mean that is one of the possibilities, right? Again, we don't have inside information from Tehran. We we don't know exactly what's going on, but there's a very good chance Iran being fully aware of Western um, obsession with this topic, that they know that if they were to completely renounce any possibility of developing nuclear weapons, they would lose a serious negotiating card, right? And by keeping these flames alive a little bit, these fears in Western capitals, they are actually using it to get what they want. Nobody thinks that if Iran tomorrow says we are not developing any nuclear weapons and we will um, destroy our nuclear capabilities, that then the West all of a sudden is going to be friendly towards Iran. In fact, it will would weaken Iran even further. Look at what happened with North Korea. The more North Korea came closer and eventually got nuclear weapons, the more the West backed off from North Korea, right? So Iran knows how to play this game, understands this. And I, if you... Where I'm not a betting man, but if I had to bet, I would put my money on this, that Iran actually is not developing nuclear weapons, but they're very happy to keep the threat alive, exactly for what you just said. Mm. And I think North Korea is, is a great example for another reason. As you said, if Iran has actually had the plan to develop nuclear weapons now for 40 years with more capabilities, you would assume that they would have gotten further than North Korea a completely isolated country with less capabilities. So I, I just think that that kind of supports that intuition that, I mean, completely. just if, happened. If, if you look at it from, from, from a Western uh, perspective, you analyze the, the sort of the Western thought process here, it's, it's also easy to see how Western politicians and intelligence agencies fall into their own bubble, right? Into their own trap uh, by just assuming the worst because they have nuclear weapons and if they if we have nuclear weapons obviously they want nuclear weapons as well uh, they are enemy and it makes a lot of sense for them to have nuclear weapons so obviously they must be developing it and then when an ayatollah says oh it goes goes against our faith which ayatollahs have consistently said by the way that it goes against their religion it goes against their basic principles to develop nuclear weapons western Politicians and agencies say, well, that's a bit of nonsense because they don't connect to that faith, right? They say, no, obviously, strategically, you should have nuclear weapons. So our basic foundational assumption is that you do, that you are developing them. And every little bit of information that we get that reinforces that is something we jump on. And all the lack of evidence that we have for you developing nuclear weapons gets ignored. So it's not difficult to see how this kind of bubble works within Western intelligence gathering. Just to add a little bit of context, um, so I already mentioned that Iran is a theocracy and the Ayatollahs there are, well, the, there's the supreme leader and they are basically the ones uh, making decisions. So when they say this, it's it's not just some priest saying this, as maybe in the Western system, but it's actually 
the uh, again the supreme leader uh, than stating this just uh, for a little bit of context exactly and which then, is which is again by the way something that the west doesn't seem to be particularly interested in right they, they they don't if you read the media they don't really try to analyze how iranian politics works it's sort of portrayed as a dark dictatorial regime Whereas in reality, it is a very sophisticated and interesting system. I mean, not one that I would want to live in. I, don't, I think there, there, are pro, there are lots of internal problems, um, moral issues within Iran, from what I can see from the outside. But it is, it is actually quite a sophisticated and complex political decision-making process that happens within Iran. And that doesn't really get a lot of attention. Um, we simplify the enemy as we always do, right? It's, and by simplifying it, we do not properly understand the processes that would lead to nuclear weapons or would not lead to nuclear weapons. And as a result, we interpret Iran as a overly simplistic, antagonistic actor that sort of behaves in the way we would expect enemies to behave. And so this article was not the only um, thing that happened in the in the news in the last month, but uh, U.S. President Biden uh, also visited the Middle East for the first time in his presidency. So he went to Israel and Saudi Arabia. Um, how does I mean how how does this fit into that Iran episode? Well, so if you really care about Iranian influence over the long term, and you say, look, Iran does not have the same worldview as we do, the same outlook. Iran goes against the sort of utopian worlds that we would like to create, right? If that is if that is actually what you are telling yourself, uh, then there is a difference between demonizing Iran and um, basically focusing on Iran as the enemy to be defeated and, on the other hand, actually trying to create an environment in which Iran has to sort of respond to you, has to react to you, where you can actually influence Iranian actions, right? There's a difference there. It's the moment you did you just purely focus on treating a country like a mortal enemy, that is the moment that you probably forget about the sophisticated ways that you can actually practically have a real impact. And to have a real impact on Iran, you need as the United States or as the European Union, you need to actually have influence over the Iranian environment, over the Middle East. And that is something that the West has been horribly failing at over the past 20 years. Whereas in the late 20th century, it's fair to say that the West was the dominant actor, external foreign actor, but actor in the Middle East, controlling uh, a lot of regimes often I would say immorally so, but they, they did. They had a lot of, lot of power within the Middle East. Now the West is out and it's basically become the playground of Turkey to a certain extent, but Russia, Iran, maybe Saudi Arabia, China, those kinds of countries. And so the West has horribly failed at its prime objective of trying to have a practical impact on what Iran and Middle Eastern countries in general are doing because they're out. They no longer have the power that they used to have. And... This we saw two weeks ago when Biden went to the Middle East. Um, so him trying to, desperately trying to, well, I mean, butter up his allies. Uh, in, in Israel, you could see there was a, a somewhat cold welcome. In Saudi Arabia, you could see this particular with this much talked about fist bump between 
uh, Saudi Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman and uh, Joe Biden. And I mean, we already, I think it was in the terrorism episode, we already deemed this visit a huge failure, right? Yeah, absolutely. That was made more difficult by Biden's initial insistence that he was going to make Saudi Arabia pariah. It makes it, of course, very hard for you to, uh, as a president and afterwards to say, oh, actually, now that we've got an energy crisis, we kind of need you. So so let's pretend that I didn't say anything, which is, again, one of the problems that the West faces all the time, right? They have these big statements about morality. Uh, they have these big statements about right and wrong, always putting themselves on the pedestal of historical righteousness, others on the pedestal, or others uh, portraying others as the, the demons, as the ones that have to be defeated in order for us to reach some Western nirvana. And the result of that is that in, in a practical sense, the United States and Europe are continuously struggling to actually have an impact on on the reality that Middle Eastern countries or elsewhere in the world countries are facing. They are so called up in their own little bubble of morality that they completely forget about actual practical steps. Uh, I mean, yeah, perfectly in fitting into this is Qatar, right? Is uh, Qatar in the last few years has come out a lot of criticism for sports washing, um, especially with the World Cup uh, next in a few months coming up. So Qatar was seen as as, as evil, um, human rights situation terrible, slaves uh, dying on uh, dying on the construction sites for the World Cup, but then suddenly we, we can no longer use Russian gas, and so European leaders are then traveling to Qatar to strike gas deals, and and all of this is forgotten. So that high moral uh, that high morality uh, that the West used in the past few years is then suddenly well you know they are they are evil they are well they're worse people out there. Exactly. And don't don't get me wrong. I mean, it's perfectly valid to say this is a regime that we believe is doing harm to the world and we don't want to deal with this regime. We don't want to. I mean, but then you have to have a consistent strategy and you can't turn back on that later on. And that has been the, the, the situation with Saudi Arabia for a very long time as well. Right. Where the West continuously sort of complains about Saudi morality, about the way that it deals with immigrants, about um uh, the way that it is a totalitarian regime and um, monarchy, the, the, the only real, genuine, old-school monarchy that still exists in the world. But when push comes to shove, the West forgets about all those high, moral higher notes and, and just tries to get the oil, tries to do business and um, acts as if those two things are compatible. And that is the problem. So if you make a choice, when you say, we believe that it is our best foreign policy to focus on morality and to say, we want to be a beacon of what we believe is right, then you have to be consistent with that. Or stop, if you don't mean it, don't talk about it and just do business with other countries and say, it's not it's not up to us what you do within your own Westphalian borders. But you have to make a choice there. And it seems that the West cannot comprehend the fact that not making that choice, trying to have it both ways, take the moral high ground and be hypocritically stilled and dealing with them is horribly damaging to their influence around the world. And other countries are seeing it and saying, well, sorry, we can't take your word seriously anymore. And we can't really take your action seriously either because you keep on being insulting to us. See, and so if the West is this, I, I want to call it practical with regards to Saudi Arabia and Qatar, um, and they do need a more long-term strategy for them, why can't the West do the same with Iran? Um, because it's on both sides a regime that they disagree with. They disagree with the actions uh, these regimes take in the Middle East. 
but with one side they are constructively working with the other one not? Is it purely the factor of a theocracy? Because, I mean, I would say 10 years ago, Saudi Arabia was similarly influenced by religion uh, than Iran is now. Yeah, I think there's there's no clear case to be made that uh, that that Saudi Arabia somehow is a morally better regime than than Iran, right? And um, in, in fact, like I mentioned before, Iran has a much more sophisticated political system internally and is in some ways much more responsive to the Iranian people than Saudi Arabia is to its own people. Um, so there's no there, there's no a priori reason why. Um, the West should single out Iran as the bad guys, but they have since the very beginning. It's sort of how history biases itself, right? And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The, the moment that the Islamic Revolution happened in 79, the moment that Iran got removed the pro-Western Shah from power and established this theocracy, the West labeled Iran as a pariah, as the on the wrong side of history. As, as, some, as, as a country that has no right to exist in its present form. And they've been very consistent with that. And over time, then that has turned into Iran actually actively resisting the West, of course, and actively starting to become a real nuisance to the West. In As we can see in Syria, as we can see in Lebanon, in other places, they're actively trying to influence their surroundings in an anti-Western way. Now... Um, that that is sort of that is becoming a self-reinforcing mechanism uh, with the West labeling Iran like that and and then Iran responding in kind. But you're absolutely right. There is no reason in itself why Iran needs to have this position, and the West is actually not helping itself by by creating this enemy. However, as we know, we've discussed this before. People like having clear enemies, and Saudi Arabia is too important for the Western economy, oil-wise and gas-wise, uh, to actually uh, be labeled an enemy. And Iran actually is not that integrated into Western economies, so it's an easy target to go for. We need that outsider group to focus on. And um, I'm afraid that that's going to continue for quite a while longer. See, it's... Um, I mean, I'm not sure whether whether I'm... I'm, I'm buying this because, I mean, so when this happened, this kind of break happened in 1979, you had the Islamic revolution in Iran. And at that time, Iran was also important for the West regarding, like with, with regards to resources, the Shah was very pro-Western and there, I mean, the, it was, I mean, I'm, see here, I'm not too familiar with the specifics on, on how integrated uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia were in 1979, but Saudi Arabia had a similar event in 1979 with the siege of Mecca. And afterwards, suddenly, because that's then when the ulama, so the religious clerics, became a lot more influential in the in the uh, royal family, and Saudi Arabia also became became more radical and anti-Western. And so there, you you didn't have that same moment. So I'm a bit. I mean, but what's, it, what's the, the regime, mechanism here? The regime was never removed from power. It was never a regime change. The the Iranian experience was one of a clearly pro-Western monarch, the Shah, um, who was working together. And who had had very long and clear personal ties um, within with the royal houses of the European royal houses, for example. The, the, there were clear friendships between the Shah and and the different monarchies across Europe. Um, the there was a clear sense of sympathy towards the Shah. The revolution 
completely removed him from power and said, now we're going to do things differently. And we're going to do things in a way that we do not respond to Western hegemony. We do not uh, feel that the Western way of life is the way of life that we want to have in our countries. That was such a radical change. And keep in mind that in the first couple of years, there was a hope that this would be only temporary. There was a hope in the West that this revolution would fizzle out, that it, there would be a counter-revolution and the Shah would be restored to power. And even after he died, there was the sense of Iran can actually still become a democracy again. And so... In the early years, there was never any attempt to sort of negotiate with this new reality. Whereas in the case of Saudi Arabia, it was a problem for the West. But Saudi Arabia never took the stance of now we're rejecting everything that came before. They just became more, if you like, radicalized in a certain way. And become, they became less sympathetic to the Western cause. That is not exactly the same. That is a much more subtle process where the West didn't have to react in such a aggressive manner whereas with iran first couple of years let's get rid of this revolution let's go back to the good old days and when that never happens okay now iran is uh we've we've had too many years of demonizing iran we're going to continue this because we can't now all of a sudden embrace a regime um after after the policies that we've implemented i think that that uh that makes a lot of sense and i think this is uh, this is the bubble uh, that we always talk about Often bubbles are not just something um, that, that, that gets constructed overnight. In fact, they never are, right? They are always um, constructs of history, of a path that people go through. And Iran is a very, very clear case of, that, of, of such a bubble. That doesn't make any sense from a rational perspective. If you look at it from a distance, you say, indeed, as you just said, Dario, why Iran and not Saudi Arabia and others... But through the lens of history, you can understand how we got where we got and how people are so caught up in their own perspectives that it becomes very, very difficult to step out of them anymore. And I think that uh, that sums the Iran episode up uh, very well and what happened last month. Uh, moving on to our next uh, episode, uh, the third episode where we analyze the hollowing out of Western institutions and how this influences external actions where the mechanism that we described was that our societies have become so tribal that it is no longer about strengthening the Western system, and rather now it's focused about your own tribe winning the fight. There we looked at the case studies of the U.S. Supreme Court decision on Roe against Wade and on Boris Johnson clinging on to power as the U.K. Prime Minister. Boris Johnson since then has stepped down as Prime Minister, and now the uh, race for his uh, for his succession has erupted with, I think initially it was 12 candidates and now has uh, narrowed down to two. Um, and there was an article in The New Yorker uh, that I found, which I think unintentionally summarized very well um, the, the problem that we pointed out. Uh, because it wrote, and I'm going to quote the article here, and it's obviously uh, linked in the description below, that lose the next election and you will never be back because we are now in politics where the winners change the rules of the game. The conservatives have already shown that winners do try and change the rules of the game. If they lose the next one and lose the rules of the game, they will really be screwed. And I think that this sentiment of from now on, the winners change the rules of the game within the system is exactly that hollowing out of the institutions to your own benefit and no longer about how can we tackle inflation? How can we, uh, I mean, I don't know, come up with a sensible uh, COVID policy? 
now it's really about, it's not about how can we shape this country for the next 20, 30 years, how can we do an agenda to bring society closer together, but now it's about how can we change the rules to the extent that we will definitely win the elections uh, for, the, for, the, for, the, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, that's, that's ex exactly right. I mean, it's in that sense, it's a brilliant quote. It's also a very sad quote, of course, uh, but it's a brilliant example of um, what we're talking about. It's this idea that there is nothing bigger than winning uh, politically for your side, for your tribe. And that it's not as if in the past uh, people weren't trying to get the upper hand, that politics uh, was a fair fight and all that, but there was much clearer a sense, institutional sense, and also amongst, in society, uh, among voters, that yes, there is a specific political party in power, but there's something above that political party. And, and that, that something above has to be respected and has to be upheld no matter what. And if someone broke the rules against that, and it did happen, if someone went against um, the basic pillars of what that society stands for, let's um, talk about, for example, Nixon, uh, President Nixon in the United States, then there will be a punishment mechanism for that. Now that is completely gone, uh, people accept the idea that it's all about your political party shaping the system according to your needs, to your wants, and there is nothing that is limiting that potential power to change it. There's nothing um, that makes your party, your political tribe, be in service of something else. And another example of this is then the January 6th hearings, where uh, now... U.S. President, uh, well, former U.S. President Donald Trump, um, and they, I mean, it's, it's, I, I learned the other day, I was corrected in the Institutions episode, I called it a trial, it's a congressional hearing or a Senate hearing, uh, so he's, he's not on trial there, um, but it is, um, uh, yeah, no, the, the sentiment here is not necessarily about working up what happened, but a lot of commentary I hear around it is how can the Democratic Party use this to win the election, the upcoming uh, midterm elections in November, where I'm, I'm, I'm always very taken back because I'm like, hang on, this, isn't this about like kind of reliving that moment and making sure that this doesn't happen again and maybe strengthening the system? But no, suddenly it is about how can we use this, like this institutionalized hearing, how can we use this to our advantage in the next elections? Yeah, that's a, once again a very good example. And it's important to repeat before listeners send in comments on this, like, oh, in 1980s this happened, or in 1970s this happened. It's never been a black or white situation, right? Because there's always been the sense that big events can be used for political gain. That has always been the part of any civilization, whether it's democratic or not. But the difference here is that that is now the overarching narrative and concern. How can we use this to establish the Democratic Party or in the in the case of the United Kingdom Labour, um, on, on the political top again, rather than, hang on, now maybe for a second we need to be a little bit modest in terms of politics and we actually need to very carefully look at how this endangers all of us, whether you're Tory or whether you're Labour, whether you're Republican or whether you're Democrats in the United States, something is happening here that is actually a fundamental danger threat to the pillars of our society. And that means that for a second we need 
to be humble and modest about our political leanings and we need to look at at, at reality that that is so, that's a sense that is completely lost at the moment and uh, it is something to be very fearful of very concerned about if you care about um, western society in any way keep in mind that both boris johnson and donald trump really did not leave in any way that would become be becoming of a leader of a democratic nation right uh, donald trump desperately tried to hang on and even was hoping that january 6th uh, would be some kind of revolution to restore him to his rightful throne and uh, boris johnson only left office after basically his whole cabinet quit and there was no one around him anymore to actually do the job that needs to be done within government he had absolutely no choice that should have happened way, way earlier. Donald Trump should have, of course, after elections, gracefully um, uh, accepted his defeat. And Boris Johnson should have gone two months ago when it was already clear that his legitimacy as prime minister was gone. But that's not the times that we live in anymore. And just because we, we don't only want to hammer on the Western system and uh, say that everything is bad out there, a positive individual example of this then could be seen in Mario Draghi that aside from all the flaws in the Italian political system where the only reason why Draghi was put in this place is how especially in Italian politics parties are very much focused on their own gains um, but here you had and this happened last week um, Draghi who is a technocratic uh, yeah, prime minister he's not he's not in, he's not elected to the parliament but after the last political crisis, he was backed by uh, like a, I think almost eighty percent of the of the uh, popular vote represented in political parties in the parliament. And after uh, last week's um, first uh, vote of no confidence, where he won, but one of the big parties boycotted the vote, uh, so he refused to to them. Could still comfortably governed with with that but, majority, but apart from his own coalition, right? That is the that's essential here. Oh yeah, exactly. Um, so part of this own coalition, it was, I mean, again, going from the, from the far left, going to the far right, uh, so the Five Star Movement, you had Lega. Um, so the Five Star Movement, which is a left-leaning populist movement, uh, they, they didn't back him anymore. And so he felt like that wasn't enough for a non-democratically elected leader, for someone without a mandate to rule this. Um, then there was a second vote of uh, confidence, and now even fewer parties, now the Lega also did not back him. Uh, again, he still could have governed, he still had a majority, but he chose not to because he felt like this is not enough. I'm, I have no democratic mandate and despite thousands of mayors from Italian towns desperately asking him to, to stay in power, he said, no, this, this would be bad for, the, for, for democracy in Italy, which I think is a positive example or am I missing some, some internal or like some, uh, yeah, some, some benefit that Draghi stands to gain from this? No, I, I think Draghi is more of an old school politician in that sense, right? Who, I mean, politicians will always be politicians, but they, but the old school ones still understand that there is such a thing as personal responsibility and, and knowing when your time is up and knowing when you have to respect the system and when, if the system is not um, supportive of your political approach, then it's probably time to do something else, right? Uh, that is, that is the way that politics should be carried out, and I, I think Draghi, in that sense, is a good good example of of 
a counter to the Boris Johnsons and Donald Trumps of this world. Moving then on to the fourth episode uh, we had um, in the past month um, where we talked about terrorism and where we analyzed terrorism and the way it has been used as an external enemy and to justify destructive actions by Western states, as well as the need to fight um, outsiders in a way of distracting our attention away from internal problems and further weakening the sustainability of the Western model. And here we want to focus on the use of the word terrorism um, in general, but also in the last month. Uh, Boulder, how is, how, is, how is this problematic? How are we using or maybe even abusing the word terrorism? Well, terrorism is um, a label that we attach to meaning, right? Words, it's sorry to be philosophical here for a second, but, but words do not in themselves uh, have meaning, right? Words can are carry meaning, and as long as we agree on the meaning of that word, then it's fine. So it's, it's like... Uh, a way that we attach my thoughts to your thoughts. Um, and I'm saying that because we can define words in any way we like. We can define terrorism in any way we like. Uh, the way it is being used nowadays is incredibly broad. It is being used more and more to basically identify those who do things that we do not agree with, those who take violent action in a way that we dislike. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of that use of the word, but that would be fine, except that it comes from a tradition of understanding terrorism as inherent evil, as inherent darkness. So what we're doing now is we're using the, 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 the traditional, and I would argue sort of the correct um, way, uh, definition of terrorism from the past as, some, as a, a, a dark tactic to accomplish certain political goals and using violence or other in, uh, types of intimidation to get you what you want uh, rather than going through proper political process. Now we're using it basically to label our enemies in a much worse way than otherwise would be possible with other words. And, and that is very, very problematic because it, it takes any precision out of the conversation. It takes any accuracy out of the conversation. It creates a sense of good versus evil, a sense of we, the West, are standing up against the evil terrorists, but it actually belittles the, the need for analysis, for understanding what is actually going on. And so when we label a government, a a terrorist organization or we label an enemy as a terrorist even if they do not commit terrorist acts then what we're doing is we get creating an air of superiority about ourselves versus them and we are dismissing the needs to actually understand what's happening on the ground and the example of the story that happened last month um, that caught our attention here where we felt like well we felt a need that we needed to discuss the terrorism episode again so now the U.S. Congress is considering to designate Russia a state sponsor of terrorism, um, which, I mean, th that's one side of it. But then also, and I think which caught our attention even more, is a statement from Zelensky's wife, uh, Zelenska, whom, and this is, I kind of want to say this in her defense a little bit, who is not a trained uh, politician and who, who did not, does not have a degree in international relations, but she still used, I mean, so she, she called um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine an unprovoked invasive terrorist war. Um, and I think this is a great example of how the word terrorism is used to create a very clear sentiment 
I understand why she did it, but it's um, I think it's incredibly dangerous rhetoric to use and uh, further delegitimizes almost the word terrorist. Yeah, basically what it does, it says they're the bad guys. They're using, they're they're doing something that they're not allowed to do. Um, but going beyond that, by me using the word word terrorism in this case, I am basically saying they have no legitimacy to exist because we've agreed in our world that the moment you're a terrorist, then you lose any legitimacy to political discourse, to to rights, and all that. That's that's sort of the world that we live in nowadays. And so let's go back to reality. First of all, um, say what you like about the invasion and the war that was absolutely started by Russia, whether it's unprovoked or not. We can discuss that. Um, But it was absolutely voluntary war by Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin and Russia. Um, They are not terrorists in themselves. They, They may do horrible things and they may kill civilians. Um, but that doesn't make them terrorists in the re- in traditional sense of our understanding of the word terrorism. So that statement is factually just wrong. But more than that, what it does is it makes it impossible to actually communicate to the Russians about this. Because the moment you label them terrorists, then that's it. <laughs> you know, you're done. Uh, we have to fight this out. And secondly, it makes it harder for yourself to understand the motivations of what is happening, why Russia is doing this. It makes it harder to actually look for practical solutions. That is not about justifying Russia. Understanding is not the same as justification. It is simply respecting the fact that if you have a difficult, horrible situation like war, then your first Priority needs to be to find ways to end it in a way that isn't lethally damaging to your society. And you cannot do that if you think in these, time, in these terms of a illegitimate enemy that really is just it consists of horrible murderers and terrorists and they have no other objective rather than to destroy your culture and your society. If that is your approach, then you're going to be terrible at finding a way out of the conflict. You're going to be terrible at actually solving the issues at hand. Another example of this, and of course we're talking about terrorism right now, but I think is the a term that has been similarly politicized and loaded with meaning is genocide, which has also been used a lot of in this context, where you're using a word in very spe- to create a very specific sentiment towards the other side, um, and it, it does not add anything to analysis. Yeah, exactly. I mean, genocide, it's, 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 a, it's a word that if you define it precisely, there are very few, there have been unfortunately some, but there have been very few cases of true genocide um, in the world. I mean, the most recent example would be the Rwanda genocide. The, 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 that was, I mean, I don't think anyone can question the, the legitimacy of using the word genocide because it fits the, clearly the definition. But um, by taking a word like that and then labeling certain events with it, what we do is we, first of all, corrupt language. We weaken language because next time there's a real genocide, we, it, 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 it loses its power, right? Because we've used it way too often. It's like the boy who cried wolf. Uh, the more you do it at some point, people just don't care anymore. They don't react. They don't respond. 
And secondly, it oversimplifies very complex situations. It oversimplifies something that requires serious thought and serious understanding. Um, in the case of Russia and Ukraine, um, if you want to understand um, Russia because you want to know how to deal with Russia, you cannot think of them as just murderers. In the case of most humanitarian crises, you cannot just think of it as genocide because that would provoke thoughts of Adolf Hitler uh, murdering 6 million Jewish people during the Holocaust, which is hardly ever the case in history. The, those, those moments are so special, they are so, un, they're so uncommon, that to think in such a simplistic term about them um, makes it almost impossible to come up with solutions. Well, this seems like a great moment to end today's um, episode, uh, our review episode of the past month. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to jhasenstab at reihegroup.org and we will try to incorporate uh, them in our following episodes. Thank you very much for the listeners for joining us today. Um, make sure to join us again next week when we attempt to burst the Western bubble. This is it from my side, Balder. Which closing quote did you bring for us today? Um, well, given the very broad nature of today's uh, series of topics and the various items that we discussed, I thought I'd go to everyone's generic go-to guy for quotes, Mark Twain. The very ink with which history is written is merely fluid prejudice. Mm -hmm.